0: So today, our journey through the book of Colossians is going to lead us to the topic of slavery. Uh, not a popular topic, uh, but a very, I think, misunderstood topic in a lot of ways. And we're going to talk about some of those misunderstandings. In particular, we will look at the attitude and actions God commands men to have, whether they are slave or free, bond servant or master, Or we could say in today's world, employee or employer. The Bible is relevant for all of life. Even now, as God's children, we ourselves are called slaves of God. We are all commanded to serve our master in heaven faithfully and cheerfully from a a sincere heart of love. Our text today is Colossians three. 22 through chapter 4 verse 1 <clears throat> Bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye service as men pleasers but in sincerity of heart fearing God and whatever you do do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we are free in Christ, not free to do whatever we want. We are free to serve you. In fact, we are free to be slaves to you for righteousness. Father, help us to understand what the Bible is teaching us in these verses. Help us to hold these truths properly in the right way so that we can live and walk wisely before you in this crooked world. Father, we ask that you would make us witnesses to you, bright lights in the darkness of this world for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. So in scripture God gives specific he gives specific he gives specific commands to both slave and master and the principle of these commandments apply today to all men uh, it, because no man none of us are free from authority so i'm going to go through these verses from verse 22 to the first verse in chapter 4. I'm going to go through these, and then I want to talk a little bit about slavery as it's presented in the scripture and our understanding or misunderstanding of it today. God's command for slaves to obey their masters applies to us in principle today. <clears throat> I don't think this is difficult for us to see. So, again, in verse 22, bondservants, or that word is really literally slave. Slaves obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. That word translated bondservant in my New King James Bible is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. So this word doulos is used 128 times in the New Testament. It is often translated servant, sometimes translated bondservant, sometimes it's translated slave. But the literal meaning of that word is a slave. There's another word, the word we get our word deacon from, that is also a word translated as servant, but A deacon is not the same as a slave. A diakonos is not a slave. That's a willful servant. A slave is a servant who has no choice but to serve. And it's interesting that Jesus uses this word quite frequently in describing his followers, his disciples, and us today as his children. Not just Jesus, but throughout the New Testament. So this word is the word slave. The scripture does not encourage slaves to resist their masters, but to obey them. And that obedience is not to be carried out grudgingly, but sincerely as unto the Lord. And this is not about ease or the word we like to use today, equity. This is not about ease or equity. This is very simply about obedience. This is the Lord's will. This is the Lord's word, and he supplies grace for us to obey, just as he supplied grace to these slaves hearing the words of the apostle Paul back in Paul's day. This command implies a place of contented peace in the Lord. Don't confuse contentment with complacency. We are never called to be complacent, but we are called to find our contentment in the Lord. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, I want you to hear this. If you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is the Lord's slave. The scripture encourages slaves to not be concerned about their slavery. But if it's possible... To be made free, take advantage to become a freedman. In other words, Paul says, look, if you're if you come into Christ and you're a slave, don't be concerned about it because there's nothing you can do about it. But if you have the opportunity rather to be free than use it. In other words, take that opportunity, take advantage of it and become a freed man once free. Then use that freedom to continue serving God as what? As a slave of Christ. That's what Paul meant when he says, "You, you who are uh, slaves are the Lord's freedmen. Likewise, you who are called while free are slaves in Christ." And so when Paul tells these slaves to take advantage of freedom, if it's presented to them, What he's saying is take that freedom and become a freed man, but continue serving God and realize that even though you are a freed man now, you are still a slave of God in Christ. And that is true for all of us today and throughout our time on this earth until Jesus comes again. So remember, Jesus came to set the captives free. We're all slaves of sin until Christ sets us free. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not the fast that I've chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Now, the context here in Isaiah 58 is that Israel was fasting before the Lord and they were inflicting upon themselves, denying themselves food and they all had sad faces and they wanted to appear really pious and holy before the Lord. And God chastises them in that. And he says, this is not the fast I've chosen. This isn't the fast I want from you. And in that section of scripture, this is one of the things that God says. Is this not the fast that I've chosen? Here's the fast I've chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke, because Israel was putting in bondage one another. They were enslaving their own people. And God says, no, that's not right. God's work of redemption is about our freedom. The freedom God desires for his people begins with our being set free from the bondage of sin and death. So the most important freedom you can experience, that you can possess, is a freedom in your heart. A freedom of the spirit. A freedom of knowing that Christ has set you free from sin and from death. You can have that freedom incarcerated in a prison... You can have that freedom in Paul's day being the slave of a master because that freedom is not contingent upon my outer circumstances. It is contingent upon my heart. And this is what God does when he saves us, when he causes us to be born again, he gives us a new heart. And so our freedom doesn't begin out here. Our freedom begins in here, in our heart. God changes the world as he changes our hearts. So from this place of freedom in Christ, God changes the world through the power of his gospel. Slavery today still holds men in bondage, but the gospel is stronger. The reality of this sinful world is not the reality God has planned for his redeemed world. We're going to talk a little bit later about the the reality that slavery still exists in our world. It hasn't gone away just because we had a civil war in America and, and we had a civil rights movement and all of that. Slavery is alive and well on planet Earth. Slavery is a sinful human institution that is temporary. It is being incrementally and utterly abolished through the power of the gospel. As his kingdom comes and his will is done from generation to generation, slavery will one day be no more. The phrase in Colossians 3.22, masters according to the flesh, Paul qualifies that because he's reminding us there is a Lord and master in heaven that we all must obey. Slaves were to obey their human masters in the flesh, knowing that even those human masters have a master in heaven they will answer to one day. Obviously, the command to obey in all things did not apply to obeying sinful things. It's like children, obey your, Lord, your parents in all things the assumption is that parents are never going to command their children to do sinful things, things that are against the Lord. And the same is here, Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to slaves who are indentured to maybe pagan, maybe believing. So Onesimus is in view here in this epistle. And he was a Christian who was a slave to a Christian master. And there's a whole book in the Bible where Paul writes to this Christian master. And he says, I'm sending your runaway slave back and I'm trusting you're gonna do the right thing by him. Paul didn't say you've got to release him. But this is what Paul is reminding both slave and masters of and all of us in these verses. So it's not that slaves were to obey when sinful things were commanded, They were not to obey if commanded to to reject Christ. They were not to obey if commanded to worship false gods or perform sinful actions that would violate the word of God and sound doctrine. In other words, a slave, like many people on earth today, a slave would have a choice to make to obey his master in the flesh or to obey his master in heaven. We are always called to obey our Lord in heaven no matter the cost to us on earth. This would have been understood by those Christian slaves that Paul is addressing in this letter. Paul is commanding slaves to obey as unto the Lord, not with mere eye service for appearance sake, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, he writes. You can obey outwardly while rebelling inwardly. I'm not going to speak for you, but I have done that and can still be guilty of it. Our outward obedience is to flow from the inward place of a sincere heart that fears God. That's where our obedience is to flow from. And this is true for us today. It's true for children obeying parents. It's true for employees obeying their employer. Now, you might have the right to walk off the job anytime if your employer asks you to do something you don't want to do. We're not talking about your employer asking you to sin. Maybe your employer wants you to work harder. I'm not here to work hard. I'm just here to get a paycheck. You know, that might sound funny, but that's actually what's happening. You can talk to any person in any industry, and they find it very difficult today to find people willing to work. This applies to us today, to employees and employers, for wives submitting to husbands and for husbands loving their wives. This applies to all areas of our life, professionally, personally, and spiritually. It applies in the family, at home. It applies at work, at school, at play, and in all things where interaction with people exists. Colossians 3.22 commands you what to do. You're to obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And in Colossians 3.23, Paul instructs how we are to do that. Colossians 3.23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. There is nothing hard to understand about this verse. The previous verse implies our obedience can come from less than a sincere heart. We obey for appearance sake, but not sincerely. The Bible says don't do that. That's a sin. The Bible calls that eye service when we perform tasks or we obey with no real sincerity of heart or fear of God. Paul expounds on this in verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. So let's consider this for just a moment. What's it mean to do something heartily? It means to do it wholeheartedly with all your heart. We obey heartily, the Bible says. We could use words like half heartedly. So if I'm not obeying heartily, heartily or wholeheartedly maybe I'm obeying half-heartedly or halfway my dad used to tell me if you're going to do something do it right don't do it halfway he actually didn't say halfway he used a different phrase there that I won't use but you probably all understand what it was do it all the way and do it right What you do heartily is ultimately for the Lord, not just for men in the flesh. And all we do is to be done as to the Lord and not to men. We are doing things for men, but we should never do things just for men and not consider all that we do out of sincerity of heart in the fear of God. All we do is to be done as to the Lord. And if you're going to do a job for Jesus, let's just say, for instance, what kind of job would you want to do? A job heartily done right with excellence or a half-heartedly done job that's just good enough? I used to work for the state when I was in college. Five summers I worked for the highway department. I worked for the engineers, and we would survey highways, future highways. And there was a phrase you heard all the time. It's good enough for government work. That's not what the scripture's talking about. A job hardly done right with excellence is what the scripture is talking about. And the reality is that everything you do, you do for Jesus. For there is nothing we do that he does not know and he does not see. This is Paul's point, and it is consistent through the scripture. What we do, we are to do as unto the Lord. We are his children, and all we do gives witness to the world around us. Most importantly, all we do is unto him, whether we realize it or not. And even when we think we are simply doing our tasks for men, there is no part of our life we do not live before the Lord. Therefore, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Then in verse 24, Colossians 3, 24, Paul reminds us of our reward, knowing Colossians 3, 24, knowing we do things heartily as unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So however much or little we receive on this earth in this life, we are to know that our true reward will be received from the Lord. And we also need to realize that we can never receive on this earth what God has prepared for us in heaven. So it's not our earthly rewards that we ultimately look to. Because Job said, naked I came into this world and naked I will leave. I didn't bring anything into it. I'm not going to take anything out of it materially. Let me read these verses these 3 verses in 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 total for the fuller context here Colossians 3:22 through 24 Bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye service as men pleasers but in sincerity of heart fearing God and whatever you do do it heartily as as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance For you serve the Lord Christ. So Paul is writing here to the church. And within that church, remember he writes specifically to to children. He writes to, to, to fathers. He writes to mothers, to wives, to husbands. He writes to slaves. Paul is writing to encourage the slaves hearing his letter. More than likely, the slaves Paul is writing to cannot read or write. Maybe some can, but most slaves in that day were not educated. So these slaves are hearing Paul's letter. And he wants these slaves, and he wants all of us to know that we will receive from the Lord the reward of the inheritance. And it is the Lord you serve and not only men. Therefore, it is the Lord that we ultimately, that we ultimately look to for our reward. For a slave in Paul's day, it would be great comfort to know that they serve the Lord Christ no matter who claims ownership of them in the flesh. The same is true for us today. We are not slaves in the same sense as those in Paul's day. But we are all under authority and our attitude and our expectation will either reflect our faithfulness in the Lord or our Rebellion against him. It will either reflect our obedience to the Lord or our rebellion. Paul is not at all minimizing the life situation of slaves or anyone for that matter. Paul is pointing to the sovereign God who brought every person into this world and into Christ as he willed. This was what Paul's point was in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He brought them into the world either as slave or as free. This is not fatalism. This is faith. This is faith in a sovereign God. This is why today in our current culture, it is so damaging and sinful for people to say, I don't care how I was born. I don't care what body parts I have. I may look like a boy, but I'm a girl. I may look like a man, but I'm a woman. It's rebellion against what God did when he created us. This is pure rebellion because God birthed you either male or female. And instead of being thankful for how he birthed us, we rebel against that and and decide that we can command our own destiny and go against nature and go against biology and go against the created order and do and be what I choose to do and choose to be. Everything Paul is writing here in this letter to the Colossians rages against that, speaks against that. So it's not hard to see how this principle applies to us today. We're not slaves, but we're all under authority. We're all under God's authority. Your relationships and your relationship with God through creation is something that we are to embrace and trust the Lord as we live our lives in that reality. Today, there's a blatant and sinful sense of entitlement in our culture. It is destroying the blessings of liberty that we have so long benefited from, as well as the economic freedom and opportunities that we have long enjoyed. The virtues of obedience and sincerity of heart, of the fear of the Lord and doing things wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, of not seeking the approval of men, but knowing that our reward is from the Lord. These are virtues that are fleeting and very difficult to find today. These virtues must be restored. And only faith in Christ and only the gospel of Christ will restore them. That's our only hope. There's no hope in politics. There's no hope in government. Be wise in your politics. Pray for your government. Thank God for your government that that we still have a measure of freedom. But don't put your hope in government. Don't put your hope in politics. Our hope is in Christ, and that's it. God has advantaged us with freedom. So let's use it to our advantage. So let's vote for godly candidates. Let's petition our government while we still have the freedom to do that. But that is very different than looking to those sources as as our source of hope or those places as our source of hope. Our only source of hope is Christ. The only way we will see the restoration of these things is through the gospel of Christ. Colossians 3.25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. Again, Paul is encouraging these slaves Hearing his words. This is a warning to all that he who does wrong will be repaid for what he does. This is a warning to slave and to master. There is no hiding, there is no justification, there is no escaping God's justice. There is much partiality in this world, if you haven't noticed. There are slaves and there are free, there are rich and there are poor, there are haves and have-nots. Partiality is extended to either side depending on the self-serving agenda that's being promoted at any given point in time. That's why when you listen to politicians, you hear them speak out of both sides of their mouth at the same time. It's like Rush Limbaugh used to say if their mouth is moving, they're lying to you. And there, there is some truth in that. Men can be given equal opportunities, and outcomes will always be different. This is true because some men will apply God's grace more diligently and with more wisdom than others. It's also true because some men are destined for different stations in life than others. Paul's writing to some men who are born slaves and some men who are born free. And they didn't have a say in that. There is partiality in this fallen world, but there is no partiality in Christ. In Christ, all are one. I'm going to read again Colossians 3.11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul wrote those words to remind the church that in Christ there is no partiality in his love. Christ is all and in all, or as he writes in Galatians three twenty-eight, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no partiality or inequality in God's love For his children. In other words, in Christ, the slave is one with the master, the poor is one with the rich, the uneducated is one with the educated, and the male is one with the female. You are all one in Christ, for Christ is all and in all. For the wicked, for the one who does wrong, God will repay for what he has done. Man is sinfully partial. God is righteously impartial. And he is impartial in his justice. For the slave who lives in a world and system filled with partiality and inequality, God assures him that in Christ there is no partiality. In this world, men commit injustice and justice seems to go unserved. It was true in Paul's day, and it's why he writes this verse. With God, his justice will always be served in this life or the next or both. For those who live under the oppression of this world, for those who are powerless to change their circumstances, who seem to have no voice, for example, the slaves in Paul's day and many in our own, God assures them that in Christ there is no partiality. The wrongs will be repaid and made right. The Lord will make all things beautiful in his time. And in time, partiality and justice and oppression will be no more. God will repay, for in him there is no partiality. Church, this is our hope. This is God's promise. We need to remind ourselves of that when we see injustice and we fail to see justice served. Colossians 4, verse 1, now Paul speaks to masters. He's been speaking to slaves, and he's eluded these commands to be applicable to both, but now he's speaking directly to the masters. He says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Masters and slaves are in very different positions. I think we all understand that. The scripture teaches that to whom much is given, much will be required. There is an understanding here that masters have the advantage over slaves, masters have a freedom that slaves do not have. Masters have Resources and opportunities that slaves do not have. Masters have a position and a status that slaves do not have. And masters have an independence that slaves do not have. Slaves are dependent upon their masters for the very basic necessities of survival and anything above the basics. Therefore, masters are commanded to give their slaves what is just and fair. And they are to do this knowing they also have a master in heaven. As dependent as the slave is upon his master in the flesh, so the master in the flesh is even more dependent upon his master in heaven. Masters in the flesh forget that easily and get caught up with their power over those beneath them. And we still see this taking place in the world. We are not slaves today, but there are those who are in places of authority who treat us as slaves, rule us as slaves, while at the very same time calling us free. And we may, we may not like that. We may become angry over those realities, but we need to remember that those in authority over us also have an authority over them. And God has made us free, not slaves. Therefore, when the authority over us does not obey the authority above them, God says there's something we can do about that. We appeal to a higher authority. It's a whole different subject, but it's why we have a nation called America on planet Earth because that's exactly what our founding fathers did. They went to the authority above the highest earthly authority they had. Paul is pointing this out for the benefit and the protection of both slave and master. Both are reminded they are accountable to the master in heaven who is faithful to provide their needs and who is impartial in his justice and in his repayment of those things that are wrong. This is true for us today. Whoever you are and whatever you do, you have a master in heaven. You will give an account to him one day. And if you are trusting Christ, you can rest assured that you will not have to answer for your sin. Christ has already received the Father's wrath in your stead at the cross. But we will still give an account for those things we have done in the body and out of the body, the Bible says. In other words, what did you do with the salvation God gifted to you? That grace that was given to us in Jesus Christ that took away our sin, that grace of a sovereign God should motivate us to live for the glory of our master in heaven. I want to shift gears a bit now and go back to address This topic of slavery in general and how it's presented in the Bible. There is much knee-jerk reaction to this topic today due to a lack of education in the fundamentals of history. The history of our nation and the history of the world. There's a push today for tolerance and equity at all costs, even at the cost of our nation and the long centuries of progress that have come to be because of faithful and devout Christians who paid dearly for our freedom and for our prosperity. Slavery is not yet a thing of the past. A lot of people in America do not have a clue at the amount of slavery that still exists on planet Earth. Because they have no understanding of slavery other than what they've been propagandized with in our culture today. I believe slavery, as we commonly understand it, even misunderstand it, is evil. It has rightly been outlawed and abolished throughout history in many parts of the world. Unfortunately, there are still many parts of the world where slavery still exists. And many people do not realize this, especially people here in America, because we're not especially good with history. And that's that's by design also. Slavery is not a thing of the past. It's a sad reality that still exists in our world today. Based on numbers from 2020 from the United Nations, I know, consider the source but I've looked at a lot of sources and they're all pretty consistent. There is an estimated 40.3 million people in modern slavery. 24.9 of those people are in forced labor. There are 5.4 victims of modern slavery for every 1,000 people in the world. That might not sound like a lot, that's a lot. One in four victims of slavery today are children. Now, there's a lot of things said about slavery, but here's the reality. We cannot accurately determine determine if there's more slaves in the world today than ever before in human history. That's often said. And it may be true, but there's no way to really determine whether that is true or not. But what we know for sure, undoubtedly, is that there are far more slaves today than were taken in the transatlantic slave trade. This claim is unequivocally true, even with lower in estimates of the amount of slavery on planet Earth today. The number of slaves today exceed the range of slaves shipped across the Atlantic. And it is the transatlantic slave trade that most Americans are familiar with. It's what we fought the Civil War over here in America. Unfortunately, slavery is still thriving in parts of the world, and we can come back to that. But first, let's briefly look at what the Bible, how the Bible addresses slavery. So the Bible treats slavery for what it was and what it still is today, a reality of our sinful human condition. The Bible doesn't try to hide it. The Bible doesn't pretend like it's not there. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about it and gives guidelines in what to do in the face of this reality. This in no way makes slavery morally acceptable. It simply deals with its existence. Keep in mind that slavery as presented in the scripture is often different than our concept of slavery from our nation's history. Among God's people, among Israel, forced slavery as we know it was forbidden. The Jews were forbidden to enforce their people, to to force them into slavery. That was forbidden. You could have voluntary servitude. You could sell yourself to pay off your debts and that is a form of slavery but not what most people understand. It's not forced labor. It's a voluntary labor and you make a commitment that you're bound to for a period of time. The Bible had ways for that to end to make sure sinful man, every seven years, slaves were let free. There was a jubilee where all people were freed every 50 years and all debts were forgiven. So the Bible made provision. Slavery in the Bible, according to those commandments, what we see in the Old Testament scriptures is not what we commonly understand as slavery as we've come to know it in in our nation's history. The Bible does not condemn nor does it condone slavery. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. In fact, God used their slavery for the good of, of of. that nation, he built a nation out of that slavery. And for the good of humanity, Christ came out of that nation to save the world. He used it to keep his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation and more. In the time of Christ, slavery was as common and as accepted part of the world men lived in. It was, it was just nobody thought a thing about slavery because that's just the world men lived in. In the Roman Empire, it was believed at times there were more slaves than actual citizens in some places. That is no doubt true. Slavery in the New Testament is not dealing with the nation of Israel, but slavery is practiced in the Roman Empire and the pagan nations. This is who Paul's writing to. People who are enslaved under Rome or under under pagan authorities. The scripture does not specifically condemn slavery, but it does specifically condemn many of the practices historically associated with slavery. Most notably, it condemns the practice of man-stealing or kidnapping. Exodus 21, 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. All the slave traders who bought slaves in Africa and shipped them to Europe and America, according to the Bible, they should have been sentenced to death, not to mention all of the Africans who sold their fellow tribesmen or competing tribe members to Europeans. In the Bible, kidnapping or man stealing was punishable by death. Kidnapping souls to sell into forced labor is typically what we think of today when we think of slavery. That sinful practice defined the transatlantic slave trade as we most that we're most familiar with today. And the Bible forbids this practice both in Old and in New Testament. First Timothy chapter one, verses nine and ten. Paul writes, knowing this, That the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers. Paul was well aware of the slave trade during his day, and he said, That is sin deserving of death. A child of God does not practice that, does not live that lifestyle. Kidnapping is a grievous sin. The Bible certainly condemns. It also condemns the mistreatment of human beings that fall outside the cultural norms of the day you do realize that the cultural norms in Jesus' day and in the Old Testament times is not the same as today. No one was afraid to use the rod. In fact, they saw sparing the rod as a sin. Today, we don't like to talk about that. Today, professionals tell parents, don't spank your kids. In that day, 40 lashes minus one was a common punishment for many crimes. And it was not seen as inhumane. It was just the norm of the day. I'm not advocating that. I'm very thankful. We don't have that today. But you understand how some norms change. Sin doesn't change. Sin is sin still. But what we call normal today is far different than what people called normal 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. And this is the beauty and the power of the gospel. The spread of Christianity has brought great reforms to mankind throughout history. The reality is that Christianity not only brought about an end to slavery in Europe and the Americas, it opened... Endless opportunities through the social and economic changes that it influenced and brought about. When you look at a map today, I wish I had one, but I don't. The nations that are still plagued by slavery today in our world right now are those that have largely rejected the gospel. The nations that have eradicated slavery are the nations that have historically embraced the gospel and in turn These nations ultimately embraced freedom. And this has greatly changed our world. I'm not telling you that there are not people in America, in the United States of America, enslaved today. There are. There are sex slaves. There are slaves being held, uh, immigrants against their will to do things against their will. But you understand our nation does not condone slavery. Our nation seeks those people out and arrests them and prosecutes them. But there are nations on earth who freely condone slavery and, and, and don't have a problem with it. I want to talk to you as I close about why the West won. Not how the West was won, but why the West won. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a, a long section from a book. I'm sorry, but it's worth hearing. Because we are uneducated and ignorant in large part to these truths. And as you learn the truth, you need to spread that truth to your friends and your families who are believing a lot of lies. So Europe and North America are commonly referred to as the West in geopolitical terms. This has been true especially since the spread of Christianity into Europe and then into the new world, into the Americas. What's often called the Protestant work ethic, in reality, predates the Reformation. It predates it by centuries, actually. The reality is that it should be called the Judeo-Christian work ethic. When one considers why Europe and North America far outpaced the rest of the world in development... Capitalism is often given credit. If you don't know what capitalism is, we'll talk later. I don't have time to explain it today. But just understand free markets. Capitalism did largely, it did largely develop, really exclusively, it developed and it flourished in Europe. But the question is, what brought about capitalism? So here's where I want to quote from Christian sociologist Rodney Stark. He wrote a book a number of years ago called How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism, and the Success of the West. And I quote, The most convincing answer to those questions attributes Western dominance to the rise of capitalism, which took place only in Europe. Even the most militant enemies of capitalism credit it credit it with creating previously undreamed of productivity and progress. In the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels proposed that before the rise of capitalism, humans engaged in the most slothful indolence. The capitalist system was the first to show what man's activity can bring about. Close quote from Karl Marx. Supposing that capitalism did produce Europe's own great leap forward, it it remains to be explained why capitalism developed only in Europe. Some writers have found the roots of capitalism in the Protestant Reformation. Others have traced it back to various political circumstances. But if If one digs deeper, it becomes clear that the truly fundamental basis not only for capitalism but for the rise of the West was an extraordinary faith in reason. A series of developments in which reason won the day gave unique shape to Western culture and institutions. And the most important of those victories occurred within Christianity. While the other world's religions, listen, this is important. While the other world's religions emphasized mystery and intuition, Christianity alone embraced reason and logic as the primary guides to religious truth. From early days, the church fathers taught that reason was the supreme gift from God. And that means to progressively increase an understanding of scripture and revelation. Consequently, Christianity was oriented to the future while the other major religions asserted the superiority of the past. Encouraged by the, schol- encouraged by the scholastics and embodied in the great medieval universities founded by the church. Do you know all of our Prestigious universities today were all founded by the church as training centers for Christians to go and take the gospel and this godly reasoning to the pagan heathen world in uneducated darkness. My, how far we have fallen. Sorry, I lost my place. These universities founded by the church, faith in the power of reason infused Western culture, stimulating the pursuit of science and the evolution of democratic theory and practice. During the past century, Western intellectuals have been more than willing to trace European imperialism to Christian origins, But they have been entirely unwilling to recognize that Christianity made any contribution other than intolerance to the Western capacity to dominate other societies. Rather, the West is said to have surged ahead precisely as it overcame religious barriers to progress, especially those impeding science. That's what. That's what they proclaim now, Rodney. Uh, Rodney, um, I'm sorry. Rodney Stark says to that, and I quote: "Nonsense. The success of the West, including the rise of science, rested entirely." on religious foundations, and the people who brought it about were devout Christians. All of this stemmed from the fact that from earliest days, the major theologians taught that faith in reason was intrinsic to faith in God. Augustine, Aquinas, and other major theologians taught that the state must respect private property, and not intrude on the freedom of its citizens to pursue virtue. In addition, there was the central Christian doctrine that regardless of worldly inequalities, inequality in the most important sense does not exist in the eyes of God and in the world to come. As Paul explained, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, male nor female, for ye all are one in Christ. And the church theologians and leaders meant it. Through all prior recorded history, slavery was universal. Christianity began in a world where as much as half the population was in bondage. But by the 7th century, Christianity had become the only ...major world religion to formulate specific theological opposition to slavery. And by no later than the 11th century, the the 1000s, the church had expelled the dreadful institution from Europe. By, By the 1000s, slavery had been expelled from Europe. That it later reappeared in the new world is another matter... Although there too slavery was vigorously condemned by popes and all who eventually, all the uh, eventual abolition movements were of religious origins. Free labor was an essential ingredient for the rise of capitalism. Free labor, free men laboring is what he means here. For free workers can maximize their rewards by working harder and more effectively than before. In contrast, coerced laborers, a.k.a. slaves, gain nothing from doing more. Put another way, tyranny makes few people richer, a few people richer. Capitalism can make everyone richer. Therefore, as the northern Italian city-states develop capitalistic economies, Visitors marveled at their standards of living and many were equally confounded by how, by how hard everyone worked. Think Venice. Venice was a center of this in history. The common denominator in all these great historical developments was the Christian commitment to reason. That is why the West was won. In short, Christianity, close quote. So in short, Christianity, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is why the West won. It is why Christians and Christianity will continue to win today, even until he returns. That's a quick and condensed overview of how Christianity in the West contributed to the advancement out of slavery, out of oppressive government systems and economies, how we came to be free. We would not be who we are today as a people, a nation, or the church, apart from the gospel of the kingdom, daily lived out by faithful Christians. It's how we came to be who we are. It's our history. We are departing that way now, and we are beginning to see the destruction of the very foundations that, that made us a free people, people with endless, boundless opportunity. That is still available to us in Christ, in the gospel. We still are free. So as Paul told the slaves he wrote to, use that freedom to your advantage. We are today as the church to use our freedom to our advantage, not just for us personally, but for us corporately and for our nations and our cities. We should be seeking their peace and their prosperity because in their peace and in their prosperity, we will experience peace and prosperity. This is the sovereign grace of a sovereign God working in the hearts and the minds of men and women who faithfully and obediently serve the Lord Christ. And that faithful obedience changes the world. It has throughout history, and it will continue to do that. So how should we work? As unto the Lord, as heartily as we possibly can. It is Christ's faithful obedience that redeems us. It is Christ's faithful obedience that we remember as we come to this table each week. So let us prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, proclaiming His body and His blood. Let's all stand. In your charge today, church, I want to encourage you to not be afraid of the truth, to not be afraid to seek out the truth and to speak out the truth. There are so many lies being foisted upon us today. And they didn't just begin in the last several years. This has been happening now for well over a century and beyond. We are people who have the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Paul writes, how are they going to know if there is no one telling them? How will they hear without a preacher? And preachers are not just men who stand behind pulpits. You are called to be preachers of righteousness, preachers of truth. So to your family and to your friends and to your acquaintances, speak the truth. Look for opportunities to engage in conversations where you can speak the truth and love to those who need it. Dispel the misunderstandings and the mis- information that is prevalent in our culture so that people can begin to know the truth. Think of all the Christians you know who actually don't read the Bible. I talked to one last night. Encourage them to read the Bible. Encourage them to read the Bible with you. Then you can talk to them about what the Scripture says. And watch the light go off when they realize how uninformed or misinformed they have been. This is what you are being equipped to do each Sunday is to go out into the world. This is the work of ministry to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And he is with us even till the end of the age. Amen.